The U.S. re-enters the Paris Climate Agreement, and China keeps building coal-fired power plants. This is the Brief Before Impact. This is Brief Before Impact with me, your host, Matt Parker. Welcome, everyone, to episode number five. A lot has changed in the world since we recorded episode number four. Officially, Joe Biden is the 46th president of the United States. And as his uh, administration took office, I began just to look at what were his first policies that he wanted to make a priority in his first days in office, which is what led me to kind of taking a deeper look into the Paris Climate Agreement as the U.S. officially re-enters the agreement after uh, President Donald Trump had exited the agreement early in his days in the administration. So today we're going to evaluate the agreement in the following ways. First, talk about what it is in a quick summary, as well as the pros and cons. Second, uh, we'll discuss kind of the economic cost, cost of the agreement. Uh, third, many have argued that this type of agreement should be an international treaty and what other treaties of this distinction would look like. Uh, fourth, can't help but talk about what China is doing or not doing when it comes to climate change. And finally, we'll talk about some of uh, the effectiveness of the overall international agreement with some final thoughts. But before we jump into the episode, let's take a quick ad break and then we'll be right back. All right, welcome back, everyone. First, let me say I'm not a climate science guy. I don't have the background in that. I'm by no means an expert. I'm just an analyst, and I think this is an interesting topic to discuss. So I want to throw that caveat out there. Uh, when I kind of take a look at the data, this is what I come up with, and I just want to put this on your radar uh, for to understand what this Paris Climate Accord, how it affects the average everyday American. So with that said, let's jump right in. Uh, first, talking about a couple of pros and cons with the agreement. And this is according to TerraPass. A few pros. Uh, first, the agreement has global support. Uh, it poten Secondly, potentially to slow climate change. Third, this would create clean energy jobs. And fourth, this levels the playing field for different countries. So a few cons, the agreement would be difficult to enforce in its current uh, format. Secondly, impacts of energy-related jobs in uh, other, such as whether it's natural gas and oil. Third, different rules for different countries. And fourth, this agreement may not go far enough to slow global warming. So there's certainly some issues with the agreement in its current format and how it may affect people. Uh, so, for example, if you're on the side that climate change is very real and it's very destructive and it could potentially end all humanity to be dramatic. Um, the pros of this agreement, that it's widespread throughout the world and potentially could slow some climate change. However, if you're on the other side, when you think about um, what the cons are, well, how are you going to enforce such an agreement? Or what if I work in, I don't know, coal country, Virginia? What will happen to my job, for example? So this is the issue, and this is why we're bringing this up, because while it's an international agreement, it certainly does affect just your everyday uh, average American. Second, I want to move into economic costs, what this would actually um, look like in terms of American dollars. So according to uh, adubon.org, the adopted in 2016, the Paris Agreement, including 199 nations, uh, excuse me, 189 nations, including the United States, they have agreed to keep global temperatures from rising more than 
3.6 degrees Fahrenheit above pre-industrial levels. And for the United States, we have pledged that by 2025, we will reduce its, our emissions by 26 to 28 percent of 2005 levels. Okay, so that's what is trying to be achieved here. Now, what does that look like in dollars? According to Global Energy Institute, meeting the commitments President Obama made as a part of the Paris Climate Accord, uh, the cost, this could cost the U.S. economy $3 trillion and 6.5 million industrial sector jobs by 2040. Now, this was highlighting a comprehensive uh, study prepared by NERA Economic Consulting. However, there are many opinions on what it costs, and let me give you a contrary one, uh, according to TerraPass. Um, this is according to the Natural Resources Defense Council. Uh, the U.S. may lose even more money by not participating. So some studies claim that the economic benefit could be as high as $19 trillion. So those are kind of going the opposite direction, to say the least, in terms of what would happen in terms of um, the actual dollars coming or going from this agreement uh, and what, you know, just the average American might be charged to do so, and at least in taxes, uh, or the, maybe the, to be tremendously beneficial to new jobs and so forth, uh, according to the one study, I had $19 trillion. So the economic cost, uh, it's kind of an unknown and not a hard agreement on what it would actually look like. Third, I'm going to move into the format of this agreement itself. And it's not an international treaty. And a lot of people have proposed the idea of why, or should say ask the question, why is it an international treaty? And when you talk about or read about, I should say, climate change in the media or in newspaper articles, it seems to be that the sense of urgency is great to dealing with it. Now, whether you uh, agree with the severity of climate change or not, the narrative is that it's a very a severe issue and a lot is on the line. Okay, if that's the case, then in my mind, I'm thinking why is such an important issue doesn't actually lock down in an international treaty, much like important issues of, say, the 1960s and 70s during the Cold War, those were international treaties. And I'm specifically highlighting uh, nuclear weapon treaties. For example, uh, the Strategic Arms Limitation Talks, or SALT for short, SALT-1 and SALT-2, those were signed in 1972 and 1979, uh, according to Britannica. And those negotiations were aimed at curtailing the manufacture of strategic missiles capable of carrying nuclear weapons. And later on from that, according to Arms Control, uh, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty was signed in 72. And that was that barred Washington and Moscow from deploying nationwide defenses against strategic ballistic missiles. In the treaty preamble, actually, the two sides asserted that effective limits on anti-missile systems would be a substantial factor in curbing the race in strategic offensive arms. So we all know the devastating effect nuclear weapons have. If, in fact, climate change is to have such a devastating effect as well, then why hasn't this become an international treaty? And I think that's something a lot of folks have pointed at, saying that if it is, in fact, such an important issue, this can't just simply be an ex executive agreement. I, Obama went into this Paris Accord. Uh, Trump pulled out of it. Biden is now back in it. So as we all know, in America, our presidents tend to bounce back and forth every four to eight years between Republican, Democrat, Republican, Democrat. I guess we just get tired of remembering what one was like. We want to bring the other one back. So if I'm not quite sure how effective such an agreement would be, 
in meeting any type of goal if one president can simply pull out of it and the next one jumps back in. So if you think about another treaty, for example, NATO, the North Atlantic Alliance, this has been going on for decades. And the United States and its partners have actually committed blood and treasure uh, acting under full constitutional authority um, to support their allies in any type of commitment, uh, in any type of uh, you know, armed conflict. You look at Afghanistan, there's still this still fight still goes on today, and many NATO partners have uh, joined that fight. And I mean, that's over uh, 20 years now. So the reason that alliance has been so effective because it had that broad support and in times of um, a broad consensus, if I can say that word. And I think the importance to be stressed on whether the Paris Accord should be an international treaty is what it would take to achieve a treaty. Just to give you a little constitutional law, uh, what does it take to become a treaty, or at least in the case of the United States? Two-thirds of senators in the U.S. Senate have to vote to ratify a treaty, which essentially is a supermajority of the American people either agree on an issue or the least acquiesce to whatever America's commitment is. Now, what would it take to get two-thirds of U.S. senators uh, to agree on an issue to ratify something in 2021? If you're paying attention to the news or at least you listen to how things are, um, I mean, right now we have a split Senate 50-50 with the Vice President Kamala Harris being that, that uh, tie-breaking vote. So if you can get two-thirds of senators to agree to anything, I would imagine there's a broad consensus to do so, uh, which kind of brings to the point of if climate change is such a could have devastating effects on the world population, then to get this treaty passed, you would need a, an open discussion across uh, political lines throughout America to get buy-in from people to say, this is important for our safety and benefit as well as the rest of the world. This is why it needs to be a, a, an international treaty. And I think that that conversation would, and that kind of buy-in from people would be, have a very positive effect on current American political discourse. Uh, if, for example, the national news media, the main, the main broadcast networks, if they are like the voice, literally, figuratively, of politics, uh, there's just two sides, and they tend to shout at each other and say the other one's terrible and we're awesome and the truth. This is the issue uh, whenever trying to achieve any type of political goal in that type of environment. You're not going to be able to achieve two-thirds of uh, American senators to agree on something like an international treaty, committing America to huge efforts, no, no matter how good the cause is. If, if climate change is such an obvious cause, well, then that is the issue. And that, that's why I believe if America wants to move forward and actually be effective with anything, such, especially climate change that, that appears to have such devastating effects, according to uh, its adv advocates, then an open political discussion should be a, a primary effort made by politicians to move into an international treaty. So moving on, I can't help but mention where China is in all this being the second largest economy. And as we're about to learn, the actual the largest uh, uh, producer of carbon emissions. And so let's take a look at, at a report produced by the EPA. Um, regarding the emissions of the United States and the emissions, carbon emissions of China. The U.S. emits 10% less 
than it did in 2005. But China has more than made up for that difference, increasing its emissions from about 5 billion metric tons in CO2 in 2005 to more than 10 billion in the most recent statistical year. So China now emits nearly twice as much as the United States does, generating 30% of the global total. The reason for this, um, China's economy has been growing rapidly, and they're still trying to play catch up as fast as they, as they can, which is why in the climate accord, uh, according to Climate Action Tracker, China pledged to begin reducing its emissions in 2030. So it hasn't even begun to do so yet, but once it arrives to 2030, then China is actually going to start reducing its emissions. And it'll also promise to generate 20% of its energy from non-hydrocarbon sources that same year. And an additional problem regarding China and what they've been doing with coal-fired power plants. Uh, this is according to uh, Yale Environment 360. China is constructing and financing hundreds of infrastructure projects and coal-fired power plants in countries across the developing world as a part of its Belt and Road Initiative. The Belt and Road Initiative, just for a quick summary, it's literally trying to build a trade route between China and Western Europe across Central Asia. And in that process, they've been funding all these large infrastructure projects, uh, bridges, dams, roads, etc. And along the way, they've been building coal-fired power plants to produce the power that's needed. According to a 2019 World Bank Group working paper, and this is focusing on the Belt Road, uh, Belt Road Initiative, the potential for indirect effects of land use change and deforestation from the, the initiative, that road and rail construction could not only profoundly affect forest cover, uh, ecosystem health, but also generate a significant impact on global climate. So you might ask, Matt, why are you talking about China and why are you bringing up all this, uh, the impacts of their initiative? The point is, China signed on to the, Par the Paris Climate Agreement, and their obligations were like, well, we'll wait till 2030 before we start reducing our emissions. And even though we're doing that you know, domestically, we're also building all these coal-fired power plants across Central Asia for our Belt and Road Initiative so we can further grow our economy and our reach across the world. So this agreement in its current format, it's purely up to whatever the, the nation state wants to do that it signs it. In the case of China, they'll start reducing emissions in 2030 and then generate 20% of its energy from non-hydrocarbon sources. The United States has had uh, a bit more of a, I couldn't say aggressive, but a more ambitious plan. Uh, there seems to be more of a, a sense of urgency when it comes to what we're trying to reduce uh, uh, our carbon emissions by uh, pre-2005 levels. So it's not exactly fair how things are laid out in this agreement, especially since there are no real obligations to this agreement. So I have to talk about, to wrap this up, effectiveness. Is this plan, is this agreement effective? Well, I guess it depends how you measure effectiveness and what the goal was in the first place. Let, let me give you this. According to World Resources Institute, since the adoption of the landmark Paris Agreement on climate change in 2015, global momentum to tackle climate change, the climate change crisis, has been building. Progress has been made almost every front from bold corporate emissions reduction targets 
and investors shifting away from coal to a surge of support for net zero targets and rising movement of youth activists from Uganda to India, culminating in Greta Thunberg being recognized as Time Magazine's 2019 Person of the Year. This is what I believe the real goal of the Paris Climate Agreement is. It's pushing the awareness and the story of climate change into the minds of every citizen in the world, and obviously the governments, but as with a quote highlighted, um, companies are jumping onto the climate change bandwagon. Um, Certainly investors have been. In my own industry of financial services, I've seen a tremendous amount of money being pushed into green energy companies uh, because after the Biden election. Uh, I'll highlight this quote from Michael Oppenheimer. He's a climate scientist and a policy expert at uh, Princeton University. If a grade is awarded to the Paris Pact, you know, based on whether we have any prospecting of, uh, excuse me, any prospect of meeting that 3.6 degree Fahrenheit target, from that point of view, it's probably a D or an F. He's talking about the grade we would give this. But at the same time, he says that agreement has made a real difference by helping make climate change a top concern of all countries. So this is where it all kind of wraps up to me in my mind why the agreement is first not an international treaty and what its true purpose is. The agreement in my mind is simply to build this global idea and mentality of that climate change needs to be tackled. And by emphasizing that none of these obligations of climate change are Uh, obligatory, but rather up into the individual um, nation is entirely up to them, makes it a little easier for countries like China to buy into. I mean, China can say, yeah, we're going to reduce the carbon emissions, you bet. We're not going to do that until 2030, though. We're still growing our economy, and we need need some more infrastructure projects throughout the world to uh, have more of a influence in different different continents outside of outside of Asia. But, you know, we'll get to it eventually. And uh, another report I had saw said even many European countries, though trying to curb their emissions, haven't met their goals or are not on track to meet their goals by 2025. So again, uh, to kind of wrap this up with a final thought, if climate change is such a, or could potentially have such a devastating effect on the world, then a international treaty should be required um, to ensure that that the effects of climate change are curtailed and that would require a broad consensus which would be via a open open discussion across political lines at least in the united states to make that happen but at this time i don't believe it is actually the goal i think it's more like uh, more or less putting in the minds of every person that climate change is devastating the world and the sense of urgency is now and uh, nation states need to act. So we'll leave it there for this time. Wanted to put this uh, issue in your mind now that the United States has re-entered the agreement and at least give you an idea if you weren't familiar with it before what the Paris Agreement was, certainly what it is not, and how uh, we could potentially see this issue being shaped moving forward uh, between in the United States and between the international community. Uh, we'll have four years of the Biden administration making this a priority. Uh, so it'll certainly be interesting to see how this further develops. 
thank you. Thank you for joining uh, me today on this episode. I really hope you're uh, picking up what I'm putting down here. More episodes are coming soon. They'll always uh, be weekly uh, episodes. Homework for you this week, go share the podcast with someone who you think would actually enjoy this. Uh, It certainly is a pleasure for me to produce this content. Keeps me sharp on all these issues. We will see you next week for another episode. I am Matt Parker. This is Brief Before Impact.